0: and if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the word of God and turn with me to the gospel record of Mark. The gospel record of Mark in chapter number three. The gospel record of Mark, chapter number three, and if you wouldn't mind, let's look together in the gospel record of Mark, chapter three, and let's look together starting at verse number 20. The gospel record of Mark, chapter number three, and in verse number 20, the word of God says this. And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they lay. They went out to lay hold of him, for they said he is beside himself. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, he hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he called unto the, unto he called them unto him, and said unto them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against him and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily, I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall be blasphemed. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said, He hath an unclean spirit. There came then his brethren, and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren they without, uh, without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about On them which sat about him, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the Gospel record of Mark, chapter number three? The Gospel record of Mark, chapter three, and notice with me in verse 29, notice the phrase, shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost. And with the Lord's help, we want to preach this idea here, blaspheming against the Holy Ghost. If you wouldn't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. Thank you for the privilege it is to be in your house, and thank you for the medium that we do have of technology to be able to record and broadcast, even though sometimes we may have the hiccups. We're still thankful for them. Now we're thankful that your Holy Spirit can guide us in your Bible, and this is a passage that Honestly, give some people a hard time from now and again, people have different thoughts and different opinions. Help us to be honest towards your word and be able to discern it, that your holy Spirit can guide us and help us, that we can understand what is this, but also the principle that this passage is teaching us. We know that you have given these scriptures here aforetime for our learning, and that through the comfort and patience of the scriptures, we might have hope. I'm thankful for that promise and we claim that now that your Holy Spirit can give us the understanding we need. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we come to the gospel record of Mark in chapter 3, we come to a passage here that, as I just mentioned, troubles a lot of folks. And it's troubling because, first of all, there's a misunderstanding. And parallel passages, they associate this with the Uh, unpardonable sin now that's a big scary statement the unpardonable sin what in the world is the unpardonable sin Well, there's a lot of things that people try to say. Over the years, as I've heard people try to explain what the unpardonable sin is, some people say, what is this sin that cannot be forgiven? Some people say, I know what it is. It's murder. If you ever commit murder, that's it. You can never be forgiven of murder. Well, murder is an awful thing. But can you be forgiven of Murder. Well, we could examine in the Bible and see that God has used murderers. Think of Moses. Moses murdered an Egyptian. And yet afterwards, he used Moses to see the plagues over Egypt, to see the Red Sea parted, and to use Moses for 40 years to lead the children of Israel through the wilderness. Moses was a murderer. You talk about King David. King David was a murderer. Yet God said he was a man after God's own heart. And God used David after he committed murder. You think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a murderer before he came to know Christ as his Savior. Paul would actually drag people out of their homes into the streets. Put them on trial and kill them because they worshiped Jesus Christ. And yet after that, God used Paul, who was a murderer. And so we could say, as a fact of scripture, that murder is not the unpardonable sin. You can be forgiven of murders. In fact, I was just reading an article today where Jeffrey Dahmer, the great serial killer of Milwaukee... The cannibal who was actually eating people and had things in his refrigerator. He was saying that because he was taught evolution and Darwinism, that he was became a monster. But it was when a creationist showed him the Bible that Jeffrey Dahmer came to know Jesus as a savior. And based off of his testimony before he was killed in prison, that if Jeffrey Dahmer believed what he said he did concerning the Bible, Jeffrey Dahmer's in heaven now. God can forgive murderers. Well, what about this? Some people will say, the unpardonable sin? I know what it is. It's suicide. And the reason why is because you can't confess your sin after suicide. Suicide is rather permanent. And so you can't confess your sin after that. Well, the problem with that is that they have a misunderstanding of biblical salvation and theology. That the moment that you recognize that you're a sinner... And you realize that because of your sin, you owe God a great price. You owe God the debt of hell. And that Jesus Christ died for you. The moment that you personally accept Jesus as your Savior, that God forgives all of your sins. Not just the stuff you did in the past, but God forgave you of the sins you do today. And in the sins you'll do in the future. That means God is forgiving you of all the things that you've ever done. Now that doesn't give you permission to go do whatever you want. But it does give us a comfort that if we do mess up, that God has already forgiven us. And so if there's someone who's ever accepted Jesus as their savior, and they come to the place of hopelessness, which sometimes people do. Let me tell you, there is hope and you don't have to end it. But if some Christian came to the place of hopelessness and depression and they did commit suicide, that's not the unpardonable sin that Jesus had forgiven them of all of their sins if they had accepted Christ before that point. And so suicide is not the unpardonable sin. So what is the unpardonable sin? What is it? Well, we have to understand dealing with the idea of sins is that we have a tendency to classify sins. We know that some of our friends. Uh, <laughs> religious friends. Have classified such thing as venial sins. And cardinal sins. So that there's little tiny sins that doesn't matter that much. And then there's great big huge awful sins. But let me tell you what the Bible says. God hates all sins. And all sin is exceedingly awful. Now, not all sin has the same consequences, mind you. But all sin is awful. For example, let me give you an example. Let's say that I commit two sins against my wife. All right. Let's say that I lie to my wife. That's pretty awful. Especially from her standing, that's awful. But let's also say that I'm unfaithful to my wife. Now... Both of those sins are awful, but not both of those sins carry the same consequences. All right? So all sin is awful. All sin is bad. God hates all sin. It doesn't there's no such thing as little sins and big sins. God hates all sin and all sin is awful. That means you're gossiping. God hates. Your little white lies, God hates. Your Steaving, stealing, God hates. That teenager that likes to steal money from his mom's purse when he thinks no one's watching, God hates. And he hates it as much as a bank robber. He hates it as much as someone committing murder. He hates it as much as someone committing adultery. God hates all sin. And so it is humans that classify big sins and little sins, and that you can get away with little sins, but those big sins. No, God hates all sins. What I'm trying to say is that we're trying to find out what the unpardonable sin is. And some people like to try to list, it's got to be this sin, it's got to be this sin. But we have to line up with what the Bible says concerning the idea of sin and the identification of what is this unpardonable sin and so with that idea let's first of all grab some context of what's going on now Previously in the gospel record of Mark, we've seen as the scribes and the Pharisees have already encountered Jesus Christ. Now at the very beginning, the scribes were more honest-minded skeptics. They would run into Jesus Christ. They would ask some questions. Sometimes they asked of his disciples. But as things went on, the disciples became more and more aggravated with Jesus. In fact, the Bible says this. That they planned on to destroy Jesus. They wanted to ruin Jesus. They wanted to destroy everything that he was doing. And now they came to this place where now they have to look at Jesus' miracles. Without a doubt Jesus did miracles. They could not deny jesus's healing ministry i mean you take the guy with a withered hand remember they set him up to be a, on a synagogue for the sabbath day just to see of what jesus would do so you had the man with a withered hand and, and as uh they brought him in say jesus there's that guy with a withered hand what are you going to do and jesus healed him this guy for all of his life his hand was was retracted in but now it's without jesus healed him well, the Pharisees can't deny that. They can't say, "No, didn't happen, nothing to see here. They could not deny the people being healed. They could not deny Jesus' healing ministry. So what they had to do instead is they had to explain it away. They had to claim that what Jesus was doing was not of God. So notice with me, if you don't mind, in the gospel record of Mark, chapter number 3. And the first thing I want to show you here is a house divided. A house divided. Notice with me, if you don't mind, starting at verse number 22. Notice verse 22. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils casteth he out devils. Now, Beelzebub is a another name for Satan. It carries the idea of the Lord of Flies, the Lord of filth, and they're saying, "Let me tell you, I know how Jesus is doing this. Jesus is doing it by the power of Satan. You see, he's communed with devils, the devils recognize him, and they have the idea that Jesus is a big devil." And the big devil could tell the little devils what to do. And so Jesus being powered by the big devil. Goes to these little small devils and say. You better do what I tell you to do. Or else. And the little devils say. Please don't hurt us. And they run away. And so this is what they're telling people. They've come up with the answer. They've explained how Jesus is doing all of this. Isn't that awful? That is blasphemy. In fact, that's what Jesus is going to call it. But this is their explanation. They can't deny the miracles, so therefore we have to explain away the miracles. Sure, he's done miracles, but you know what power he's using? He's using the power of Satan. Well, of course, Jesus hears this. Notice with me in verse 23. And he, that's Jesus, called them unto him. He says, hey guys, come here. I heard what you've been saying. Let's talk about this. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? He says, let's do a logic problem here. Let's try to figure this out. You say that I'm using the power of Satan to beat up Satan. Let's think about this. And so what he does is he uses here uh, parables to explain what he's talking about to explain that this is nonsense first of all he uses an example of the secular world verse number 24 if a kingdom be divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand so here's a secular thing you have a country that is so divided that they cannot get together how can that country stand against anyone else We can almost look at our own country for an example like that. There is such a rift, such a division, that it cannot be reconciled right now. And it is headed for destruction because they cannot work things out. There is such a rift. And the country is weaker because of it, not stronger. You take a country that's about ready to go to war, and that country is divided there's no way that country is going to be able to stand. It can't defend itself. It can't fight. It, it, it's going to be trying to deal with its internal problems. It can't deal with an outside source of problems. So there's a secular example. Let's take another one. Verse 25. We see an idea of the social world. Not just the secular world, but the social world. Verse 25, if a house be divided against itself, the house cannot stand. So here it's going to the idea of a home. So let's say that in this home, mom and dad don't get along. And not only do they not get along, they're always fighting And so much that the battle lines have been drawn. And they get their friends and their families involved. Hey are you on his side or are you on my side? Come on. You're on my side. Join behind me. What? You're on their side. Don't talk to us. And they come to the place where as the two people are fighting. They feel like might gets right. If they can get more people on their side than what's on their side. They're going to show them that they're right. And when a house is divided like that. It's going to explode. I mean, that's why you have Thanksgivings where people don't enjoy that. You have the family fight. They don't enjoy Christmases because it's going to turn into miserable for everything. That's not a fun house. That's not a house. That's not what God's designed. But yet you have houses divided. A house divided cannot stand. It's not going to have strength. Notice, if you don't mind, we also see an example of the spiritual world. Verse 26. Now, if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he can't stand to put it in. So, imagine this. Now, again, Jesus is giving examples. But let's say that Satan says, all right, Satan, I hate you. So Satan punches Satan. And then Satan punches Satan again. And then Satan kicks him in the gut. You can't fight against yourself. Satan can't fight against himself. If Satan has goals and he has plans, he cannot chop off his own foot to get it accomplished. It doesn't work that way. So Jesus is saying, what you're saying is stupid. Why would Satan get rid of his plans so that way he could win? It doesn't work that way. How can Satan devise a great plan to take over the world, but then get rid of all the people that he's going to take over the world with? doesn't work that way. So Jesus is trying to say your your explanation doesn't work. But then what he does is he gives a different illustration, a more practical illustration. Verse 27. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods unless he first bind the strong man. Then he will spoil his house. So I want you to imagine that a big strong guy tall big he's able to defend himself and he's in his house and he's alert he's not sleeping he's not falling asleep he's alert he's on guard and then you take a little tiny little kid who wants to go steal from the guy when he's on alert The only way he's going to get that accomplished is if somehow he can bind up the strong man. Get him distracted. Get him so he cannot defend itself. Get him so he cannot win. So Jesus says, guess what? I have the power to bind Satan. And so if I want to cast out his little demons, there's nothing he could do about it. He says, I could bind the strong man. I can get that accomplished. He says, I can do whatever I want. I could cast out these demons and it's not because of Satan. It's because I can move Satan out of the way so he cannot interrupt my plans. Jesus is stronger than them. So he's given this illustration and he's answering them specifically that a house divided cannot stand. I am not casting out demons because I'm using Satan's power. I'm casting out demons in spite of Satan's power. Satan has no control here. And so we start off with the house divided. Now we're building up context and we're trying to get an explanation from here because we want to understand the second thing here the Holy Spirit blaspheme. The Holy Spirit blaspheme. Notice with me in verse 28. Verily, so truly I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherever they shall blaspheme. But he that blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of damnation. Now it's an interesting thing to hear about that all sins can be forgiven and blasphemies can be forgiven. Now we live in a blasphemous world. All of us have heard the phrase blankety blank Jesus Christ. All of us have heard God's name used with a curse word. But have you ever heard anybody say blankety blank Holy Spirit? It's just something interesting. Now that's not necessarily where we're going. But it's interesting that the other blasphemies can't be, can be forgiven. So we've got to define this. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost? What is this idea that you could blaspheme the Holy Spirit and God will not forgive it? What is this? Well, dealing with the context of what we have in here, here is the definition of the context. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is attributing the works of God to the works of Satan. It's giving Satan credit for what God is doing. So let's say that God is working and many people are getting saved, many people are getting right... But people want to say, nah, ah, that's all Satan doing that. That's dangerous, dangerous ground. Let me tell you that God can still do great revivals. And he can still do great things. But some people who don't want to get right with God. And some people who already have bitterness and other issues. Look at that. And they start speaking bad about God's works. That's dangerous ground. That's dangerous ground. Maybe I could do a side illustration. Monotheism is the worship of one God. Mono means one, theism has the idea of dealing with God. Monotheism is the worship of one God, meaning they believe one God is enough. As opposed to that you have something called polytheism. The word poly means many, then theism has the idea of worship of gods. Polytheism is the worship of many gods. Why did we get polytheism in the first place? Where did polytheism come from? Especially since there's only one true God. Where did it come from? Polytheism developed the idea that one God was not powerful enough to do everything. So what you had to do is you had to have a God who was in control of thunder and lightning and the rain. And so that was his only job. You have one job to bring rain. And so they would pray to that God to bring rain. And then when it came time for spring and new life and babies to come, you would pray to a fertility goddess. And that they had one job to do. Your job is to make sure we have babies. And so when you wanted rain, you would pray to this one God. When you wanted to pray for fertility or babies, you would pray to this one God. When you needed to travel, you would pray to the God of traveling. And what they did is they broke up different gods to cover different aspects. Why? Because in their mind... One God was not powerful enough to worship or to take care of. He was not powerful enough to do everything that needed to be done in God. God is powerful enough to do all of this. But the idea that some people don't think God is that powerful, that he cannot do this. Now going back to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the idea of tributing the works of God and saying Satan did it, attributed to Satan's works. Let me tell you about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Only a lost person can commit the sin. A Christian cannot commit the sin because the Holy Spirit lives within inside of you. The Holy Spirit will not let you because the Holy Spirit lives within you. That's a protection. So only a lost person can do this. And they cannot commit it by accident. So a lost person cannot commit this sin by accident. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit only comes from someone who has already hardened their hearts. And they refuse to bow the knee to God. And so they don't want to acknowledge God. And they don't want God to rule over their lives. And they don't want God to tell them what to do. So they have to attribute the things they clearly see of God to some other source. They have to explain away God's acts. They have to explain away his attributes. They have to explain it away. It is the mighty denial of God's power. This sin is committed only by a lost person and not by accident. So someone can't accidentally commit this sin. It is a purposeful, intentional act. Only after they've been exposed that God did this And they refuse to accept it because they don't want to obey God or allow him to have power in their life. That's what that sin is. It's a dangerous sin. Now let me put an underscore and tell you what it is not. It is not sinning away your day of grace. That's a whole different sin that sinning away your day of grace is the idea that you put off salvation and put it off and put it off until you die and you never accept Christ as your Savior. That's a horrible thing but that's something separate. This is talking about a purposeful, intentional act where you're denying God and his power after he's proven himself to be God to you. This is what the scribes and Pharisees, many of them, done. But there's a third thing I want to show you. And initially, it's going to look out of context. Initially, it's going to say, why is this here? We're talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the Pharisees. But then all of a sudden, we get to the subject of family. I want to show you a third thing here. The household of faith. The household of faith. Now, in the meanwhile, in the midst of this, Jesus' family have come to uh, see him. Notice in verse 31. Then came then his brethren and mother, standing without, and sent unto him, calling him. Now, Jesus is in the midst of dealing with this, and all of a sudden, someone comes in and says, hey, Jesus... Your family's outside. They want to talk with you. Now why do they want to talk with Jesus? Well notice with me in verse number 20. Go back with me if you don't mind. Earlier in the passage. And the multitude cometh together again. So that they could not so much as eat bread. Jesus. We've already talked about Jesus' long day. And his busy days. And he's had many busy days. And he is so busy. That they haven't had time to eat. Now remember Jesus is not alone now. He's got his disciples with him and he's got other followers and Jesus has been busy and he's been working by the way most people don't know how to work and so they're watching Jesus and he's healing and he's helping he's debating he's taking care of these things and he's busy and he hasn't had time to eat and his friends are worried about him he's not taking care of himself he's working too hard they're worried about Jesus that's nice but they're on the wrong side of this notice 21 And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay a hold of him. So his friends, now these aren't enemies, they're people who care for them, but oftentimes the worst attacks in our life doesn't come from enemies, it comes from people who love us. So when they heard that Jesus had been so busy, he's been doing so much, he hasn't taken care of himself, he hasn't eaten, they go on to lay a hold of him. Meaning they want to grab a hold of Jesus and they're going to force him to take a break. They're going to force him to eat. They're going to force him. Notice what they say in verse 21. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay a hold of him where they said, he is beside himself. He's gone crazy. He's working too hard. He's out of his mind. Why, Jesus, why? You need to take it easy. You're going to burn out. Oh, you're going to waste away. You can't go at this pace. And so they're concerned for him. And legitimately they're concerned of him. But you understand Jesus has got things he needs to get done. And as he's being obedient to God. These things need to be taken care of. But these people who. By the way. Why are they so concerned? Because they're not working that hard. There's something about people who work hard. That make people who don't work as hard feel uncomfortable. But he's doing too much. He's lost his mind. That's what it means to be beside himself. He's lost his mind. But it's not just his friends who are concerned. Now. Now. For those who may have a little bit of a Catholic background, I'm going to show you something shocking. You don't want to know who one of the guilty people who was concerned about this? His mother Mary. Mary, the mother of God, was part of this. He's working too hard. He's not taking care of himself. Verse 31. And there came his brethren and his mother, standing without and sent unto him, calling him. So they're not even coming into where Jesus is preaching at. They're outside. Now, I'm a parent. I understand this. Have you ever sent a child to go talk to a mother who's in another room? Hey, go to ask your mother this. That's why you got children for, right? They're, they're good runners. So instead of me getting up and going to go see my wife, I send a child, hey, go ask your mom this. And they go deliver this. Mom, dad wants to know about this. Well, that's what Mary's doing. Mary's outside. I don't want to bother him, but can you go ask Jesus to come out? We need to go talk with him. He's not taking care of himself. We're going to go take a break right now. We're going to make sure he gets some food and gets some rest. Can you go tell Jesus to come here? So they send a runner in. Verse 31. Then came his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him. So he's teaching. He just got through yelling at the Pharisees. But he's in here teaching. And the multitude sat about him. And they said unto him. Behold thy mother and thy brother without seek for thee. Hey your mom is calling for you. Are you going to go answer her? Your your, your family's outside. They want to have a deal with you. Jesus said no I'm, I'm good. I'm busy teaching here. But he says let me teach you something now. Notice this. And verse 33. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother? Or who is my brother? Now he's not saying, Do you know who my mama is? He's not like the little bird, Are you my mother? Are you my mother? Are you my mother? He knows who his mother is, his earthly mother is. He's not saying, I don't know who she is. He's teaching something. Notice this. Verse 34. And he looked round about on them, which said about him, and said, "Behold, my mother and my brethren; for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister." and my mother. What he's teaching here is that there's something different here. Anyone that's born of the Holy Spirit, now remember, how do you get the Holy Spirit? You recognize that you're a sinner because of your sin that you have offended a holy righteous God. You deserve to go to hell. But Jesus died to pay your price and you personally accept Jesus as your Savior. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of our heart. And the Holy Spirit Anyone born of the Holy Spirit is closer to others who has that Spirit inside of them. Do you know that because of the Holy Spirit unity, as we obey God's will, we serve God together, that we can be closer together as church family than we are with our own kin. I know that's true of me. I am closer with my church family. And I love y'all so much. And I wish you were here. I love you guys. And I so much. I think of you. I pray for you. I smile when I think of you. I go through the names that we have. I think of the children that are here. And they make me smile and I pray. And I am closer to you than my own kin. Why is that? Is it because I hate my family? Let me tell you. I call my parents... Uh, on the phone regularly and I don't get on the phone and say mom I hate you I don't talk to my dad say listen here I'm tired of you I don't call my two brothers up and say listen I'm tired of all the issues you have just don't speak to me anymore no I don't do that I love my family but I'm closer to my church family because of the spirit of God within us As we're trying to obey God's will. As we work together. There's something about laboring together for the cause of Christ. That puts a united bond and makes us closer. Now what is the thing between these two things? The Pharisees they deny the Holy Spirit. But yet it is the Holy Spirit that makes us close to those that we serve with. Inside of a church. We become a great family. A household of faith. This Holy Spirit. Doesn't need to be blasphemed over. In fact it is wonderful. And it's precious. That God is doing a great work. And he is doing a great work. He's working on your heart. And he's working on my heart. He's working on things in our life. He's bringing us to the closer to him. And you know what? There's going to be some people. Who thank we're crazy that's again what Jesus's family and friends thought of him I've told you the story before when I was a teenager where my family brought me in and they had an intervention they had everyone there they were all talking and said hey are we can we're concerned for you are you part of a cult because it doesn't make sense to us why you want to go to church Sunday morning and why you want to go back on Sunday night and why in the world do you want to go to church on Wednesday night you want to know why because I'm closer to those folks, because we love the Lord, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and we want to obey the will of God and move forward. I want to go there because they're my family. Now, I don't want to be insulting, and you know what? Sometimes the family doesn't understand that, and we're not trying to be mean, and we're not trying to insult them, and we're not trying to belittle them, and we're not trying to make little of that relationship. But there's something about serving God together, in having that. Now, maybe there's someone who's listening that you don't have that. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, that you could be accepted in the beloved. Maybe there's someone that does not have that relationship. You don't have it with your own family, but you don't have that anywhere else. Let me tell you part of what you need is you need to have a church family of yourself. How do I accomplish that? Well, first of all, you need to know for sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior. You have to have the Holy Spirit. You could be a part of a church and not be a part of a church if you're not saved. You could be an island all to yourself and missing out on the great things that God has for you. Are you 100% sure that Jesus Christ died for you? The second thing is that if you want to be a part of the church family, you got to join that church. You got to be a part of it and then labor together with them. There was a lot of things to go. And let me tell you, being a church member is not a spectator sport. Just because you're part of a local church doesn't mean that you warm a pew, that you have a little spot that has your name on it. That's where you sit and that's where you're going to be at. That's not it. There's so much more to it. It's as we labor together and going forward and watching God work and seeing God change his lives, it brings us closer than ever before. Let me tell you, if you don't have that, let me tell you, you can have that. And we want you to have that. We're thankful for our church, the Riverview Baptist Church, and that we can be a part of it. And I'm so thankful for these family members that I have here. That I do feel so close to them. And I watch them labor and they have burdens. I have burdens with them. When they cry, we weep. When they rejoice, we rejoice. Oh, that's what God wants us to have. And that's what God wants you to have. If you have any questions on that, you contact me and I'll be glad to talk you through it. And see what you could have with it. If you're missing that, let me tell you, you don't have to miss that. You could be a part of a place, a local assembly, wherever you're at, where God can do that with you and your family. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, now is the time to get that settled. Now is the time to have that there. For those of us who are part of the household of faith, let me tell you, rejoice in what you have. Appreciate what you have. Maybe do something this week just to thank the Lord for it and let your other family members know that you're glad that they're part of your family. People need to hear that now and again. They need to know that other people are glad that they're with them. And then let's just labor forward. Let's keep advancing forward. Let's work together. There's so much more that needs to be done. Now we need to be obedient to what God has given us to do and not go any further than that. But there is a work to get done. Let us labor for the master. Have you done your best for Jesus? We need revival. And that comes when we're looking unto Jesus together. Let's move forward together and rejoice in what God has given us.